0: the
1: beer that's oh uh, that's that's a very honest probably answer probably the best best way to be at a bar <laughs> oh. I, do you
2: know it's really funny when i was like writing the the uh the kind of the notes for this i was going to introduce you as one of my favorite drinking partners but then i was like oh maybe not but actually you probably just introduced that yourself so that's fine <laughs>
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not ashamed of being a professional alcoholic. No,
2: you're you're very good at. Everybody
0: it. knows anyway. <laughs>
2: um, but Ella, thank you so much for coming on the show. What is um, Ella and I met last year while I was working uh, with John in Imel, um, and she was running a foraging class uh, with two guys uh, from Way Out Bros. Um forest in indiana you should actually check those guys out as well on instagram um but ella's company ella's uh, utamat which for those who don't speak swedish means uh, ella's outdoor food Um, she's an expert in fungi and foraging as well as an awesome cook a writer and presenter um so ella thanks so much for joining us
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: Um, for people who maybe aren't too familiar with your work, maybe outside of Sweden, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and how, how you got into wild food and and this sort of journey that you're on?
0: Well, yeah, it's a bit of an unusual journey, I guess. I study, I spent a lot of years studying at university and I was not studying food nor plants or anything like that. I was studying international politics. Russia and Central Asia in particular so I have a master's in that I was supposed to work with uh, well international politics, environmental questions, saving the world I thought before I got old enough to realize that it's fucked already. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Moreover, <less. laughs> no, I got a bit disillusioned actually on my way there, um, and I spent a lot of I spend a lot of years backpacking as well while I was studying. So I basically realized that I want to invest the eight or maybe eighteen hours a day uh, as uh, as an entrepreneur. Uh, I'd rather invest that into something a bit more pleasant perhaps being out in the woods by the fire cooking hanging out with people finding plants and mushrooms instead of being sat in a in a gray office with gray men in suits. (laughs) so yeah i decided to swap
1: (laughs) switch i mean that that is that is um there are uh, there are few people that come with such clarity in reasons why they do a change often the time it's it's like oh, i just had this feeling of wanting to do something different a little bit more sort of esoteric non defined <laughs> but yours your yours yours is 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 defined to the point where it's like Yeah, I can 100% understand that. Yeah,
0: you know, like a lot of people like decide when they're in their 50s, like, oh, I've been working as a lawyer for ages and now I just want to do gardening. So they do some gardening courses and they open up some sort of uh, grow your own veg workshops or whatever. And I just thought, I don't want to wait till I'm 50 and do that, (laughs) you know, much. So I decided to do that when I was 30 already so that I still had a chance to build some sort of career and yeah. Get good at something
2: else. Yeah. I mean, I'm always interested in those sort of people's stories where they all take a major career turn. I mean, for myself, I w- I went a little bit further down the road before I decided I did. Although I did, I still kind of do design work. Um, but I spent ten years in in Dublin in offices, very much like what you're saying. And but I'm also like I'm a huge proponent of like kind of finding those peripheral skills and and but that I mean like those kind of side skills that you learn in your career beyond like the obvious ones. Like, for example, as a designer, I kind of became actually quite good at being able to tell stories and delivering good presentations and things. And those skills have actually helped me in my sort of outdoor career, for want of a better word. And I wonder, like, how much of your old life has kind of informed or empowered your new one or are they in any way related?
0: Well, in a sense, I mean, the I guess because I was born, I was born in the Soviet Union in Ukraine and um my interest for, I guess, politics and like um, environmental, political questions started in a way there because my whole like growing up was we moved like from Ukraine to Cuba because my stepdad was Cuban from between like different socialistic uh, countries. And so I think that sort of, uh, I guess that the interest for politics and questions like that Uh, grew grew, well with me sort of when I was growing up Uh, and then we moved to Sweden after Cuba obviously in 95 but but then also same thing was with uh, my interest for food uh, as well because when I was little in the Soviet Union there were no like half fabricates or anything everything was made from scratch in the kitchen and the Ukrainian food culture as the Russian as well is like a lot about making things from scratch. You make like soups with stocks that you cook for ages and dumplings that takes forever to make. And yeah, so there's all these like foodie stuff. So I sort of got both of those uh, from when I was little. But then, I don't know, I studied for like five, six years at the university, obviously, to get my master degree in international politics. and. I guess storytelling is also one of those things that you learn because obviously you write a lot when you study at the university. So you sort of learn how to express yourself. And that's always a plus when you kind of do workshops on fire making or foraging or
2: whatnot. Like, it's interesting. You kind of talk about that, uh, like... Having having a kind of a place in the Soviet Union and sort of this uh this sort of for want of a better word maybe like a sort of a fiery nature um and and I think for me like it kind of ties in nicely to actually the foraging um because I may maybe it's from the part of the world that I'm from obviously I'm from Ireland and it, like foraging and wild edibles and mushroom picking so isn't as big of a thing in Ireland at least not these days as it as it would be say in the nordics and for me it feels almost like kind of like an act of rebellion like i remember actually when we when you were down in emeln and we were driving around i think we were looking for a location for your for your foraging class and we kind of there was a there was a couple of apple trees in someone's garden um on the side of the road and you like pulled the car over like hopped the fence like filled your jacket with like <laughs> apples <laughs> and like hop back in the car and I thought that was quite cool like it's actually quite a rebellious act <laughs> to be able to see see opportunities for free almost you know and I really like that sort of empowerment that that kind of that bit of knowledge gives you
0: yeah and like it's also for me it's a lot about like uh efficiency when it comes to use of different um different foods i guess or sustainability you know like in sweden it's so crazy that people people talk so much about sustainability we're going to be all organic yada yada but then there are like apple trees everywhere People don't pick the apples from the trees, but when they go to Ika, to like the local supermarket, they buy the apples in a plastic bag. So it's like, why do you not knock on your neighbor's door if you don't have your own apple tree and ask if you can pick the apples? And it's like, nah, it's too much hassle. So in a sense, it's also so extremely inefficient and people don't really know anymore how to take advantage or like try to live off what we have and i mean apple trees are obviously something that people put there but then when it comes to wild foraging there's so much to be foraged and picked in sweden and the forests but people don't really have the knowledge about it anymore because they don't have to you know like back even like in the soviet union people would clear the forests of everything like mushrooms whatever like wild prude like what would you call them like wild plums and there were all sort of berries that people would send out their kids to pick stuff so that they could make jams but in sweden people have enough money to go to the shops and buy so yeah which is also less sustainable obviously because you'd rather pick something in the forest forest next door and make your jam than buy it when it's been shipped from god knows where you know for how long i mean that's
1: I, I 100% agree with you with everything. Like, uh, up here, it is still the uh, the Cloudberry spots are still family secrets. And if you give it up to someone, you know, if they ever tell you, that sort of a, 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 ever tell anyone else, that contract of that, that spot is sort of written in in, in uh, blood already. <laughs> right, um, <laughs> But from from your, I guess this is t- sort of touching what you're, Previous background is with international politics and and all of these very large scale questions. How like do you have a theory of why Swedes, for example, do not have that relationship to nature anymore that most people's just grandparents or two generations ago, if you're in your thirties, um, had? Like, is it because we've gotten gone so? modern for lack of a better term, I guess, that we don't have that need or connection to the land in a sense that we want to pick our berries or we need to pick our berries to make jam and juice?
0: Well, I think it's uh, the reason why people don't pick it anymore, because back in the days, people picked for... um. What do you call it? No, in Swedish it's called Plocka. So you basically yeah, so you was... pick it because you had to.
1: You have to, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, because you couldn't afford buying the product, like the jam. Maybe it was too expensive to buy the jam, so it was cheaper to go and pick the berries and then make the jam at home. But uh, somewhere, like probably after the Second World War and when uh, Sweden... Uh, when Sweden started developing the, um, now I don't know the word for, in English for this, but folkhemmet.
1: Yeah, Swedish, the, uh, yeah, i have no idea what how to how to even explain that in a way that makes sense if you didn't grow up in it.
0: Yeah, so basically it was about like if it, like um, this was um, the state was trying to make the economy and the society much more efficient by bringing in one of the things whether you would bring in the ladies, they would start working, bringing them to like an ordinary working market. Uh, Before, obviously the females were at home taking care of the family, but now uh, the females were supposed to go out and work as the men. And when they did that, obviously the kids need to go to kindergarten. And uh, nobody, like there's less time to uh, do things at home uh, like the reason is this whole Folkhemmet idea was because they wanted so uh, as many people as possible to work so that they would get more and more taxes so that they could create like the social system that we have or like had in Sweden I guess so that to pay for all these like kindergartens and uh, hospitals and everything as many people as possible had to work but that also meant because that actually brought in quite a change like a normative change in how people saw food in general but also I think foraging in particular because once all the ladies had to go and work and didn't have time to like do all this like cooking that they used to do at home uh, the sort of normative idea about food as a um, could say traditional Uh, something changed, so
2: it became it became more about convenience than of like traditions or or, or yeah exactly so
0: basically it became something that you had to you had to intake it in order to get energy and to get like uh, it had to be nutritious and you had to get enough energy so that you could manage your work during the day it became much less about, like, tradition and history. Oh, we're going to bake this really traditional bread that takes three days. Like, no, sorry, that's not going to happen. You need to go to Coop and you need to buy it, you know. So that's also when all these, like, half-fabricated, uh, like, um, all these frozen, uh, frozen meals came into the Swedish homes. And also the, uh, the, canned, the canned food, yeah, also became a big thing. And back then, when it came, it was also like a very uh, luxurious thing. It's like, oh wow, you can get canned meatballs, and everybody wanted right. meatballs because, like, <laughs> your mom doesn't have time to make meatballs, so buy the canned meatballs, right. and you save some time, and your mom can be at work for longer. So with that, also, uh, I think this whole thing about like going out in the forest, this traditional thing that you pick stuff and you pickle and you make jams and you make. Cordials of different types, it just disappeared because you have had to be more, much more efficient in the kitchen.
2: So, in a way, it is kind of a rebellious acting, isn't it?
0: (laughs) It is because, but also people like, I think it it comes to a point when people also get sick of the society we live in because it was like, you know, you try to be more and more efficient, make more and more money to be able to buy bigger and bigger houses, maybe two cars you know take all these mortgages like in order to afford your living you have to like work full time just to pay off your mortgages basically and I think we've come to a point when people are really um, really sick of that and just realize that oh my god I just want to go out in the, into the woods and do something and there's more maybe um, better for my soul <laughs> fulfilling for my health is, is this
1: everything. uh Is this something that you you hear from your course participants because you have some really interesting courses and uh it's a shame that it's it's so hard to find someone in Nordobotten up here in the northernmost county that does similar things Uh, and it's quite a hassle just to travel up here for someone and also for us to travel down somewhere um but, yeah, the but then you also got really snow good. like
0: all year round, so there ain't no plants up there. <laughs> <I'm kidding.
1: laughs> no, that's <laughs> right, that's very true, and that's that's one of the things that I um struggle with the most when it comes to learning about foraging because a lot of the things in in I have a lot of different books and things like that, but a lot of things is often centralized in you know around the 55th parallel, if you will. So sort of around 59th, I think, is Vadimland or something like that. So it's often in those regions where most books are written. It makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah. And the it's really, it, it, grow, it's, the it's the a lot of pages. Get. Yeah. And it's a lot of pages that is not relevant that right. you sort of try and figure out like, all right, which of these ones in this giant book that I have now is actually relevant to where i am so it's sort of, sort of a very um uh high um truskel what's yeah. that in english like very high Doorstep. Uh, cool. step like it, it, it's quite a lot of investment you need to put in to try and figure out what actually is in your area if you're using books co- compared to if someone is is um, teaching it but that was just complete side note what i was gonna ask was uh Uh, Do do, do you see and hear people talking about exactly what you were saying, that they are sort of starting to get sick and tired of the lifestyle that they had or have on the courses that you run?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think most people today know that, like, you know, this whole mindfulness be out in the forest, like, if you want to relax, what do you do? I take a forest walk. That's like the usual thing that people say, like, oh, if you want to disconnect your thoughts, I go out and have a walk in the forest. So I think most people understand that, like, spending time in nature, in a forest maybe in particular, it, it's sort of relaxing. It and, yeah, It sort of cleanses your head, you know. But also, I think what's more important when it comes to, like, foraging and this whole, like, getting the knowledge about foraging is that uh, it gets so much more interesting to spend that time in the forest if you know what's around you and especially if you know that it's edible and you can pick it and you can bring it home and make yourself a meal so that's like a whole new dimension that people want to discover when they join my courses for instance like oh my god I'm so excited I want to be a forager you know like I want I don't want to go to Ica and buy I don't know spinach I want to pick nettles and make a pie you know and people are super (laughs) excited. So, it must be
2: really rewarding to be able to yeah. give someone who, you know, as you said, people walk in the forest, it's not a new thing. People have always done it. But once you start seeing those things and you start like recognizing plants and animals and knowing the names for things, it's like it's like being given a dictionary, isn't it? It's like Earth thesaurus or something. It's like, oh, this, just, this story is, all, is like all of a sudden making sense because I have the, the tools to like interpret my surroundings. And we were so illiterate. Well, a lot of people are illiterate to do natural surroundings. I mean, everybody can name a hundred logos that they see on a screen, but how many people can name a hundred plants that they see on a walk that they do every day, you know? Yeah.
0: And then also another level of this is now that we have this problem of deforestation and even in Sweden, you know, how many uh, like really valuable forests are taken down by the big forestry companies. People can't really see a difference between a real forest, like an old grown forest and a plantar like a pine or spruce plantation. So that's also another thing, like when people learn about now, I don't particularly teach about these rare plants or anything like that. But I myself started recently learning about like. Uh, all these red listed mushrooms and some birds, and how I I just try to learn, like, how to see how to distinguish a real forest from a fake forest in a sense. <laughs> and that's also like the more you learn about these species, and the more you can see it's like, oh, I see this long shake, it's like this lava, you know, that grows, that hangs from it's like a beard that uh, hangs from the trees. And you know, it's like, oh, that's a uh, uh, if you see those, it means you're an old forest that is older than this and that, you know. And that's also really rewarding to be able to know what's around you and also to know why it's important to protect it. Definitely.
2: Well. I mean, even on a very smaller, on a much smaller level, uh, something similar happened to me in a woodlands that I used to frequent when I lived in Ireland. And I started reading Tristan Gooley's book, uh, The Hill Walker's Guide to Outdoors Clues and Science. And in this forest that I used to go camping, there was on one side, there was like a stone wall that was built. It looked like maybe a hundred years old. And very clearly, at least now it's very clear to me that on one side of the wall was obviously much ancient, more old woodlands. And on the other side of the wall was plantation. And I had been going to that forest for probably about a year before I read this book. And then as soon as I saw that, and I realized that 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 wall was dividing uh, two very different forests and it wasn't just the same, you know, that like completely opens the possibilities for me. It was like, oh my God, this is two different things. And so I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I think it's rewarding, I think is the word that you used before. And I, I really kind of, kind of agree with you on that. But like in terms of like foraging and, and obviously people are, are talking about things like uh, things that what we would consider, a lot of people would consider, let's say weeds, like things like dandelions and nettles and things. They're obviously the, the obvious things, but, are people afraid of foraging? Because I have my own apprehensions, I suppose, more around fungi and things. But um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a scary thing as well. If you're not like, where do you start? Like, what what would you what do you say to people when you when they kind of say, "All right, I, I would like to find a way to get into this, but I have no idea like where to start."
0: Yeah, I think, so to answer your first question, if people are afraid of it, yeah, like particularly mushrooms, as you say, but that's also because in Sweden, Sweden is one of those uh, mycophobic countries, like when you talk historically about mushrooms, you talk about mycophobic and... uh, mycophilic countries so countries that have been like naturally very positive towards mushrooms have been picking them a lot for food and other countries that have been completely like "Uh uh-uh this is super poisonous you're gonna die whatever mushroom you pick uh but then the plants i mean it's sort of the same thing but it's no it doesn't have this like uh i don't know this black cloud over it as the mushrooms maybe but the plants i mean they're really um healthy, and nutritious, tasty plants, but they're also very poisonous ones. So like with anything in nature, you need to know what you're picking. But for people that are just starting off, I think the easiest thing is to try to pick, pick the weeds that you talked about earlier. So nettles, dandelions, ground elder Maybe all the blooming trees, like depending on where you live, like in the north, for instance, I remember I'm from Umo myself up north, so we didn't have that many trees that would bloom in spring. So when I moved to Uppsala, I was like, oh, is this spring? Right. Flowers on trees? That's a new phenomenon. What's <laughs> this? <laughs> you know. What's this? Yeah. Oh, what's the smell? Oh my god, it's so fragrant. <laughs> so yeah, I get it's much better like living a little bit more south or at least going, you know, south to pick stuff uh for stuff you don't have in the north. But like the easiest things. Like I think you just need to get past this this threshold where you when it's like a little bit uncomfortable to pick something in the woods because some people are like are you sure? Maybe who knows? Maybe a dog peed on this. Right. Are you sure we can eat this? And I was like, dude, whatever you bought at the supermarket, do you know what terrible stuff has been sprayed on mm. it in terms of like pesticides and right. God knows what? I think even if a dog peed on this, it's probably better, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So people are a little bit uncomfortable. So I think the first threshold is like getting past these things. Like, can I really pick stuff? And it's like, yes, you can and you should, because this is so much better for the environment, for your economy and, for, you know, for this whole sustainable lifestyle that we're all trying to live. So like going out and, for instance, just picking nettles, that's like a super healthy, tasty uh, weed that has was used a lot back in the days for food, medicine, but also for making clothes. I don't know if you knew this. They used to make uh, thread out of nettles and it was supposedly was like really healthy because it's sort of like wool. It has these properties that are like good for your skin and stuff, but it's not sticky, obviously, as the nettles
2: when you make the thread. It's funny you should mention that actually because just a couple of weeks ago when Jeremias and I were working with him on his his homestead, we had some people over and one of the guys, uh, Jamie, he had a bandana with him and it was made from, I think, 70% cotton and 30% nettle fibers. Cool. So maybe there's a resurgence happening in that as well.
0: So like nettles is one of these, uh, one of the plants that most, I mean, most people know what they look like and you can't, really, uh, you can't really take it for anything else either. Um, and they're super nutritious. They have like uh, vitamins, minerals, uh, iron, calcium, there's all sort of good stuff in there for you. And you can also find a lot of them. You can make tea, you can use it basically as spinach, you know, in like pies or in pasta sauces or whatever you can dry them as well yeah it's really nice and one of my favorite things that i do during these uh, um, foraging walks because we usually walk in the forest for two hours and then we cook over an open fire something interesting with these plants so we usually make nettle snacks we just fry fry the nettle leaves and hot oil so basically you just put you pick whole like branches of nettles and then you put them in water whisk around Then, in order to get the stickiness away, you can just like um, smack them towards something like a tree or something. And then you just take off the leaves and you fry them in hot oil, put some salt on. It's like the coolest snack for a snack ever. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it's really good. And sometimes we do like a tasting. So we take different types of leaves, like for instance, nettles, ground elder, maybe like young birch leaves, and we fry all of them. And then we have like a tasting. Okay, which one is because they all taste different like nettles are like super nutty and then the ground elder is more like almost citrusy or something and yeah so these there's all these different flavors and people just like have no idea that it's so good and everybody's like oh my god we're gonna start doing this on friday evenings you know instead of buying <laughs> snacks we're gonna start frying nettles like yeah of course you should they're free everywhere yeah. locally produced yeah. organic that's very in- cool <laughs>
1: Uh, I have a, a uh, circling back a little bit to to your background. I came to think of something when you were talking about countries being uh, my, mycophobic. Um, I know that Sweden is one of the countries that does not necessarily have a very rich mushroom picking uh, history compared to Finland or Russia, for example, and probably Ukraine as well. So how you you moved to Ume, as I understood it, yeah, and and you grew up there. Did was that something that you brought with you, or your parents brought with with them uh. directly, if you will, or is it something that you sort of slowly had to relearn as you go?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it would definitely. It was definitely my mom that brought it <laughs> with us because she. Uh, we lived quite close to uh, to the Carpathian Mountains in Ukraine, in Lviv. Yeah, now all of a sudden, it's so funny because now people know, like, where I'm born. <laughs> now I just have to say Lviv yeah. and people are like, oh, yeah, we know where it is. Terrible, yeah. terrible things about war that are somehow good, I guess. Uh, yeah, so Lviv is close to the Carpathian Mountains. So it was only, like, two hours away and you were in the mountains. You can could pick mushrooms there. So my mom and I used to go... Um, Not very often, but sometimes. So she knew, along with like all the other Soviet people, she knew a lot of mushroom species. And it's not because like people spent a lot of time in the woods, but because mushrooms are such a big part of the like the popular culture and like food culture, everything. So you get to learn the different species like from books, from songs from like you go to a market for instance in Lviv and uh, you get people like farmers or people from the country selling mushrooms and it's not like trat Cantarella or gula Cantarella, you know like the chanterelles we get here it's like probably 30 different species of mushrooms and there at that market you learn to see the difference between the different species. Like, uh, for instance, like, like songs for like kids when I was little, there was always songs like, oh, we're going out in the woods. And then there's a uh, morel meets the Paulette, And then they walk together to, yeah, you know, so there's, they incorporate like mushrooms are such a big thing that you learn, even though you've never been in the forest, you know, a lot of them and know what they look like. So, yeah, so that was basically the case for my mom when we came to Sweden and we moved into uh, like this neighborhood area really close to the woods in Umeå, Esbo, that was like an immigrant area just behind the house that we lived in was like this huge uh, forest area. And my mom, like crazy, you know, when summer came, she's like, oh my God, it's like these foods are full of mushrooms and nobody's picking. What's wrong with Swedish people? You know, if this would have been like Ukraine, it would have been empty, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, yes, trip. And, you know, since people only pick chanterelles and there are like 150 other edible species in Sweden, you can imagine like how many people, how many species people pass and have no clue what it is. So, yeah, and mom was out picking all the bolets, because the bolets are the most, uh, sort of, uh, the mushrooms that are more, more, like, highly uh, regarded in the Soviet Union. Yeah, they're quite easy, because there's no, like, really poisonous species in Sweden either, so... They're quite good to learn yeah so mom was out picking and she forced me to go with her to carry to like help her carry and i was like 13 14 and i really did not want to go out pick mushrooms with my mom i wanted to go and have fun with my friends doing something uh but yeah i had to so i went out and i learned as well a lot about the different species and then when i got older i joined uh, feltbelogen it's like a youth organization for um youth uh, interested in like environmental questions and nature and stuff like that so then I started going on to the forest with them and they were really good at like birds plants uh like all everything they knew like everything about the forest and I just realized that I don't know anything at all because I came from a big city but then at some point I was like hmm I know mushrooms and they didn't know mushrooms so I all of a sudden I had my little thing you know in the Uh, in this group where i thought oh it feels so good to know something about this forest during the mushroom season i could take like the dinner you know so that's so nice yeah.
2: yeah i there was there was a i mean it's slightly kind of back on what we were talking about earlier i know we're kind of jumping around a little bit but it was something i was thinking about um that came up in an episode that I did recently with Miko in a carrier survival. And he was talking about, and he's a hunter as well. And, you know, he was talking about how, you know, there's this sort of weird, and I guess it's kind of like what you're saying there about people being afraid to pick things in nature. Maybe they're afraid that dogs peed on it or something, but I also think, um, People are almost afraid to make any sort of impact on, on nature. Um, and, you know, obviously leave no trace is, is, you know, obviously something that we all should practice for the most part. But I also think, and Mika was talking about this to me, was that we are like almost away from nature now. We're kind of like removing ourselves from it while also trying to protect it. And then I, but but we're kind of bubble wrapping ourselves from it, and to the point where we're almost afraid or terrified to do or sneeze or say anything in the woods for fear that we kind of disrupt this pristine nature. And I think that is a very recent phenomenon that people are so afraid to like uh, interact with nature. And I feel like you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a little bit of foraging knowledge could also. Um, Maybe make you more feel more part of it, or feel more able to sort of interact with nature, um, rather than just being a sort of a spectator through a glass window, so to speak. What's your What's your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, definitely agree. Like the more people know about nature, the more comfortable they feel being in nature, and realizing also that we are a part of nature, and not the observers that people usually. Well, nowadays thing that we are, but I think the hypocritic thing about this is that you know how people always say, "Oh, in Sweden we have this uh, uh rule uh, of free roaming or whatever it's called like freedom mm. to roam with yeah and it's like sometimes when I have my courses and we got we have to pick like say we pick some plants and we pick um juniper berries, and then somebody. Uh, like oh, but you're not allowed to pick the juniper berries because it's the, because it's the the law that you're not supposed to pick anything apart from like berries and mushrooms. You're allowed to pick, but the juniper berries are actually like uh, they are technically uh co- cones. What do you call it? Yeah.
1: they're te- they're technically part yeah. of a tree species so you're not lo- allowed to take living branches and things like yeah. that from living trees so that's why you're not allowed to take juniper berries
0: but it's a like it's a, it becomes so hypocritic because like when you when you know how much forest is cut down in Sweden every year in that mud like huge uh huge areas of that forest should be uh left a lot like left there and because it has so many like uh na- like high natural values and a lot of species that are endangered in those forests and still we cut them down because sweden has a huge you know forest industry and according to uh, those companies sweden is not going to survive unless we cut all this forest down which is complete bullshit as well but then it becomes so like it's such a hypocritical thing like oh no I'm not, I'm not allowed to pick this little juniper branch, but these guys are allowed to fucking cut down half Norland, you know, to get, to get the building material they're sending off to the UK or somewhere else, which is also like, it's pretty crazy, right? Because you try to you try to try to encourage people to learn about nature like go out and pick those nettles pick those little juniper berries like people do not pick a lot they pick a little bit to make a tea or whatever Uh, and that i think brings people closer to nature they get to know their nature they live in and maybe also understand why we have to protect it from all this deforestation that is happening so yeah it's both ways there yeah
2: yeah, and I suppose it's kind of like as well the whole thing with uh, people like uh, stopping hunters sort of uh, taking certain animals and things or, or certain amounts of animals um, t- t- fearing that, that you know, uh, hunters don't give a shit about the land and stuff. When in actual fact, if you're that closely tied to it and you're sort of reliant on it and your understanding of the things and the balance of those elements within your environment, then you're going to care about it much more than someone signing, a, signing a, a document in Stockholm or Helsinki about, you know, how many juniper berries you can pick every year kind of thing, you know?
1: Yeah. I find it a, it's a, it's a super, I, I find that, that sort of question is it's super interesting. Like luckily around, just around where we live here, it's all, uh, the forest is all owned by people living in the village it's a completely different mindset. But as soon as you get beyond the w- village border, you have the massive, and they are massive, clear cuts. Um, but not not, not defending it, them in any sort of way. But then with the clear cuts, you also have the opportunity for some different mushrooms coming up. Uh, I, from the top of my head, I can't remember what it's called right now. Morels, for example. um. So it is Well, not really.
0: They are particularly after like when the forest has been burned. Okay. That uh, the morals usually come. Not when they clear. No,
1: it's I not know. it's not the it's I'm not the clear cut necessarily that I'm thinking of. I'm thinking more the the disruption. So it's not as that it's not a taken aside with the with the clear cutting at all. I find it's a super interesting conversation just because of what you're saying of of uh, having people being in nature But then also saying no to the very tiny, tiny little effect to nature and making it almost a little bit ridiculous and hard for the average person to spend as much time as they might want to in nature uh, because of clear cutting and things like that and other disruption. I work with restoring rivers in the summer uh, to create better fish habitat and, and, and things like that. And even then, when we are doing... A lot of work. If someone is used to one way, the amount of people that argue that we are destroying the river when we're restoring it would surprise you because it's different. So from from that perspective of changing a different landscape, uh, not as I said, not to per, to to uh, be pro clear cutting at all, but I think it is a it, it's 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 really hard to discuss with, with, with certain people the value of keeping a forest if it is something that they don't have a relationship to they might own forest and then want to clear cut it for money someone wants to have it for uh, mushroom picking or berry picking or re- recreational area so it's a very fine line of being able to discuss it at a level where everyone agrees that the value of the forest is so much more than the 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 trees that are standing just as the value of the river is much more than the salmon that you can catch once or twice per year it's finding that balance of discussion is, is really really hard
0: yeah and that's like you always come to like in the end you always come to a question can we really like put that kind of responsibility in people's hands like for all these like species of animals plants birds insects you know everything that we all, we all, like, it's a part of the world is everybody's, right? Or nobody's, maybe. But people that own the forest have the right to clear-cut it. And sometimes many of them care, but then many of them also don't care. Or don't even know the values, like the natural values in their forest. So that's what also gets so uh, crazy that some people can just do something that can be completely demolishing for a whole species or or yeah
1: exactly it is a it's a super interesting question it is uh ella i was wanted
2: to also talk to you about uh your kind of your bushcraft background because obviously not obviously not uh, the only thing you do is sort of the foraging and things but obviously you, you have all of these different sort of uh courses that you kind of partake in there's team building bushcraft small game hunting even like ice bathing and wine tasting and things um Well, first of all, the first part of that question is like, what kind of things are people kind of going towards these days? Um, What are the types of things you hear from people attending those courses? Like, what's their main motivation for being there? I kind of, I think we kind of, kind of touched on that earlier, but then also I wanted to kind of, uh, because this was something that Yirmias had said to me earlier and I thought was really interesting is that um, obviously your bushcraft experience is kind of coming from maybe the food side of things and not necessarily the sort of the gear nuts, sort of like big knives and, or even just gear in general you know which is where a lot of people's kind of entry into bushcraft is um could you talk to us a little bit about that
0: yeah i usually so like one of the things i do apart apart from cooking and foraging and all that is also uh like teaching people how to make a fire with uh natural materials and i usually use uh birch yeah. bark and um fire rod and stuff and knives and that's it that's obviously because it's a very natural thing like every time i cook i use that to make a fire so then i want people to be able to do it from scratch not like you know some people start like sneaking out the lighters like "Uh uh-uh that ain't happening today (laughs) so nope we're gonna learn from from scratch and now like you know this program robinson you know, are they go going on an island, like Swedes go on an island somewhere and they're going to compete and survive.
2: Um, no, Apparently, I it, like, but...
0: it's been going on for ages, but lately they've been having this thing, like, making up a fire with, a, I think it's a birch and, yeah, something like that, like bushcrafty style. So now it's become, like, super hip. So, like, I didn't realize until I had people <laughs> on my, like, fire workshops. I was like, oh, we're going to learn how to make... To make fire with neverva like birch park and they're like oh my god that's exactly like the Robinson if you would have been in Robinson you would have so won and I was like oh really <laughs> so now I start to call it like you know Robinson style we're gonna teach I'm gonna teach you how to make fire Robinson style and then people go like oh yeah we want to learn that so that's sexy all of a sudden you know just because it's been right, on, right, right. on TV Right. <laughs>
1: really?
2: that's that's kind of sad yeah
0: in a way it's sad but then in a way it's like yeah it's good people can relate they've seen it on tv it looked fun now they want to learn how to do it yeah whatever floats your boat uh yeah so yeah that's one of the things and so i'm trying basically trying to do like the natural like I don't do a lot of like knots and stuff like that because I maybe I don't set up tarps very often I, I do have my one tarp that I set up but so yeah it's mostly connected to food and then it's so obviously connected to fire so we make feather sticks I teach people how to make feather sticks I work with Murak neves uh, developing products with Murak Neve and working with the bushcraft knives as well so uh, we, um, I teach people how to use the knives and how to manage. Yeah, axe, knife. How to make different types of fires. What do you have to think about when you make a fire? Usually, people make too big of a fire. You know, they just want this my my brasa, as we call it in Swedish, when you make this huge fire, and then they're gonna put this little little frying pan in there and burn their fingers off
1: <laughs> so it
0: wasn't as like some um, indian isn't it like an old indian saying white men make a white man fire fire or something that they don't realize <laughs> yeah. like dude yeah, you don't have to make it that big to be enough for whatever you're doing yeah so i basically teach people not to make a big fire <laughs> and how to make it to begin with uh stuff like that but then also like yeah it's all the same it's all you know it all sort of flows into this corner kind of a natural circle. Like you're in the woods, you make the fire, you cook your food, then you go out to look for more food. You learn what's edible in the woods. Then as well, of course, if we have like an overnight thing, then I teach people, okay, so what do you need to sleep comfortably? Well, need to insulate your, uh, yeah, your back needs to be like uh, on some sort of... Uh, what do you call it like a mattress, so that you don't get cold and why is it important to have that barrier towards the soil and stuff like that yeah so um yeah but I think most the most important thing is in general is that I teach people to be more comfortable in the woods so that they actually can go out like after whatever they whatever the event they've done with me that they can feel that they can go out and have a sleepover in the woods without it being like oh my god i'm so afraid what if an elk comes or whatever right. like right. probably not but <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> they're afraid of so many things
2: <laughs> if you're if you're lucky enough yeah if you're lucky enough for yeah. an elk to come through your camp then uh <laughs> tell us your secrets you no know, but but no i i, I think um Coming at it from an outdoor cooking point of view or perspective, I think is a really interesting one and something that I hadn't really considered before because all the courses that I've attended, they've always been like that. They've always been centered around maybe the survival element of things or the sort of the yeah, it's like maybe, maybe more for want of a better word, maybe the more masculine side of things and not to gender, you know, make gender upon cooking or anything like that. But I think it's a really empowering thing as well as the ability to be able to find food, to feed yourself, to like sustain yourself in nature. I, I, I think that is something that people are missing and are lacking actually in, in their sort of, if you want to consider yourself a well-rounded sort of outdoors person, I myself included, um, would put my hand up and say that like in terms of like my cooking and my foraging and my ability to sustain my body uh, or nourish my body, definitely I'm lacking in that kind of world and it's something that I would love to to kind of get better at. But I think, you know, you can almost cook anything outdoors, right? I mean, the old kind can of cans and can of beans or the sausages on a stick, I think that's kinda of starting to fade away now. I think you know, especially with like, you know, you can obviously get really good high quality dehydrated meals, but I suppose that's more for kind of multi-day hikers and things. Would Would you have like sort of a base of like what food you would take if you were going on a, a week long? How much of that would you carry? How much of that would you forage? You know, do you, do you take into consideration these sort of things?
0: I mean, usually I, I don't very often hike with stuff, you know, like my setup is quite heavy. I have this big car filled with stuff. So I just like drive my car somewhere to the woods. I carry stuff to the camp and I set up. Yeah, I get my Dutch ovens and my <laughs> fire pits and my huge teepee tent, you know, so I'm not the lightest uh, light packer in any way but sometimes I go like not very often but then I usually bring like yeah so we have this company in Sweden that dries uh dries uh, ingre like sells dried ingredients separately so you can buy like onions carrots aubergine's like whatever and then you can make mix mix it into your own meal so I quite like those because then you can bring maybe like five different veg and then some mushrooms and maybe some, I don't know, powdered egg. They have like egg powder and stuff like that. So you can make eggs. So yeah, I'd bring something like that because obviously you want to reduce the weight, even though I would like to bring like all fresh stuff that would still be okay after a couple of days. Uh, you also need to bring the beer, the whiskey, and the wine. So obviously, <laughs> somewhere you need to cut, <laughs> the grams, and that would be on the food, I guess.
1: So that that's the the it it is uh, sleeping kit and all the other stuff the um, average person takes out. You cut that out and you focus on <laughs> alcohol. Exactly,
0: three liters of red with The box right. of wine <laughs> is packed first. All right,
1: I'll have to come and help you carry that at some point
0: that's why i don't hike so far (laughs) i like camp life much
2: better yeah the the further we hiked it the louder these boxes seem to be getting i think that's why some of the uh the first uh everest expeditions failed wasn't it because the french had like 14 barrels of wine with them um
0: oh really (laughs) yeah something like
2: that (laughs) but uh but ella it's been Really, really great talking to you. It's really nice to catch up again. Um, is there anything coming down the line for you? I know you're at the moment kind of talking about a new book because you do have a book out that people can get in most of the outdoor kind of companies here in, in the Nordics. Unfortunately, it's not available in the UK as far as I know. But uh, what what's coming down the line for you at the moment?
0: Yeah, so I got this one book uh, on mushrooms, edible mushrooms and food. book Ma- uh, för Motelska that came out years ago. And now um it's available in Sweden and Finland, actually. And now I'm working on a new book that is uh, going to be about outdoor food on a griddle. So if you are familiar with, uh, f- for instance, uh, the Finnish brand Murika, most people in the Scandinavian countries know what it is. But like a griddle, it's like this big pan that is flat and round. And a lot of people have those somewhere, like in their summer houses, somewhere, it's probably somewhere like in the shed, uh, and people don't really use it anymore. It was big in the 70s, and nowadays people don't really know what to make on them anymore. And that's why I'm making an, uh, a book about these griddles and now we have a lot of uh, new brands coming up with these griddles that look a bit different as well and they all have different sort of uh, um, different purposes I guess depending on is it light is it heavy can you bring it is it too heavy to bring there are smaller bigger thinner round and square so I'm making a book with 40 different recipes uh, with inspiration from uh, all around the world basically my, my travels around the world and it's like it's everything from ukrainian uh ukrainian potato patties to indian stews and uh so on so yeah it's gonna be fun where we're shooting the last recipe sounds
1: great anything yeah. with potato <laughs> yeah, that always
0: works yeah so we're gonna be shooting the last recipes in april and it's gonna be out in sweden in june
2: i hope okay and it. What language is that going to be? Is that going to be in just Swedish or?
0: Yeah, it's going to be in Swedish and then we'll see. God damn it, Ella. Yeah, everybody needs to learn (laughs) Swedish or maybe my... (laughs) the publisher would yeah this one could actually be translated to english if we really wanted to it was more difficult with the mushroom book since uh, the mushrooms are sort of local the swedish mushrooms might not be the same in ireland for instance but yeah this book uh, would actually work everywhere so we'll see maybe one day if enough people want it i guess (laughs)
2: yeah no i think i think they would and hopefully after this i mean a lot of our listeners are in north america so i'm sure that would be definitely something that uh would be interesting to them but uh but alice thank you so much for coming on and it's been a long time coming we've wanted to get you on the podcast actually i remember even when we met in email we had kind of spoken about it but the week that we were there it kind of got ahead of us and we didn't end up recording something so it's been great to actually get the chance to sit down and talk with you um
0: yeah, thank you guys. It was fun. Uh, yeah, now I feel really excited about foraging and going out into the woods again.
1: Now the war
0: and now that the spring is coming.
1: Me too. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm gonna go
2: ahead and pick all my nettles. And I feel
1: I feel like uh, we could have had a um, million different topics to discuss. Like I think you have probably a, a lot of really really good and cool ideas in and around like forestry and and the the effect that has on on sort of local communities and their possibility to recreate the, re, re, have you know a, a meaningful pastime activity to be out in the forest and
0: yeah once you get yeah, we could probably talk forever stopped. i feel like i get so excited <laughs> uh, excited and angry we don't, we don't we don't need that <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> you're, in the, you're in the right uh you're in the right in the right company um but uh, those are the good conversations yeah exactly exactly
1: yeah, yeah, indeed.
2: yeah but guys i hope you enjoyed our talk with ella Um check out her book if you're in the nordics and obviously her mushroom book which you can get in Natur company it and you can also get it in partioita here in finland
0: yeah, also for those who can't uh, access the book, can always check out my Instagram, Ellis because there's a lot of inspiration there as well in English.
1: I was just going to say that, that when the book comes out, make sure you go and write to Ellis Utemot on, on Instagram uh, and tell her, or maybe tell the publisher, I don't know which way you want to do it, that you want it in English as well, so you can get it even more
0: copies yeah, out maybe we can crowdfund it yeah yeah
2: for sure for sure but we'll definitely get you on again now we can talk some history i think food history would also be a really interesting one um but yeah guys have a great week and uh, enjoy wherever you are in the world and hopefully you're getting outside and getting some foraging done hopefully it's spring your part of the world right now we have snow still like your ameas so i won't be getting any uh any dandelions anytime soon but uh hopefully you can wherever you are but until next week uh, yeah have a good one take care guys bye bye
0: see ya bye